Section 78 of Lay Down Your Arms. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philip Erickson, Okemos, Michigan. Lay Down Your Arms by Bertha von Suttner. Translated by Timothy Holmes. Chapter 19, Part 2. Mother, will you not put your morning off for the day after tomorrow? Rudolph came into my room with these words today. For the christening of his firstborn son is fixed for the day after tomorrow. No, my dear, I replied. But think, at such a festival you surely will not be mournful. Why then keep the outer signs of mourning? And you will not be superstitious, and fear that the black dress of the grandmother will bring bad luck to the child? Oh, no. But it does not harmonize with the surrounding gaiety. Have you then sworn an oath? No, it is only a firm resolution. But a resolution linked to such a memory, you know my meaning that it partakes of the inviolability of an oath. My son bowed his head, and did not urge me further. I have interrupted you in what you are about. You were writing? Yes, my autobiography. God be praised, it is at an end. That was the last chapter. But how can you bring your history to an end? For you are still alive, and will live many years yet, many happy years, amongst us, mother. Surely with the birth of my little Frederick, whom I will bring up to adore his grandmama, a new chapter must be opening for you. You are a good child, dear Rudolph. I should be unthankful if I did not take pride and joy in you, and just as much joy as my, and his, beautiful Sylvia give me. Oh yes, I am reserved for a blessed old age, a quiet evening, but still, the history of the day is over, when the sun has set, is it not? He concurred with a silent look of compassion. Yes, the word finis at the end of my biography is correct. When I made the resolve to write it, I also determined to break off at February 1st, 1871. Only in the case of your being torn from me also by war, which might indeed so easily have happened. But by good luck you are not of age for service at the time of the Bosnian campaign. Only in that case would I have been forced to prolong my book. Still, even as it is, it was pain enough to write it. And possibly, too, it may be painful to read it, remarked Rudolph, turning over the leaves of the MS. I hope so. If that pain should only awaken a few hearts and energetic hatred against the source of all the misery here described, I shall not have put myself to the torture in vain. Do you not fear one thing? Its purpose may be seen, and people so be put out of humor with it. That can only happen with a purpose which is perceived, but which the author has tried cunningly to conceal. Mine, however, lies exposed to the light. It is announced in plain words at the first glance on the title page. July 1889 the christening came off yesterday. It was turned into a festival promising twofold happiness, for my daughter Sylvia, the godmother of her little nephew, and his godfather, whom we had long cherished secretly in our hearts, Count Anton Delnitsky, took this opportunity to announce their engagement. And thus I am surrounded on all hands with happy relations, by means of my children. Rudolph, who has six years since come into possession of the Dotsky estate, and has been for four years married to Beatrix Ney Griesbeck, who had been intended for him since childhood, the most lovely creature that can be imagined, sees now his most ardent wish fulfilled by the birth of an heir. In short, an enviable, brilliant destiny. The christening guests assembled at a dinner in the summer-house. The glass doors were left open, and the air of the summer noon streamed in, laden with the scent of the roses. Next me in our circle sat Countess Lori Griesbeck, Beatrix's mother. She was now a widow. Her husband fell in the Bosnian expedition. She did not take her loss very deeply to heart. In no case would she wear continual mourning. 
On the contrary, this time she had put on garnet-red brocade with brilliant jewels. She had remained just as superficial as she was in her youth. Questions of toilette, one or two fashionable French or English romances, and society chatter, that was always sufficient to fill her horizon. Even coquetting she had not entirely given up. She no longer had designs on young folks, but older personages, endowed with high rank or high position, were not safe from her appetite for conquest. At this time, as it seemed to me, Minister, to be sure, was her mark. The latter had, besides, changed his name. And so we called him now Minister to Other Side, from his new catchword. I must make a confession to you, Laurie said to me as I clinked my glass with hers to the health of the baby. On this solemn occasion, when we have been christening the grandson of each of us, I must unburden my conscience before you. I was quite seriously in love with your husband. That you have often confessed to me, dear Laurie. But he always remained quite indifferent. That, too, I knew. Well, you had a husband true as steel, Martha. I could not say as much for mine. But nonetheless for that, I was very sorry about Griesbeck. Well, he died a glorious death, that is one comfort. A widow's life is truly a tedious one, especially as one grows older. As long as there are treats and people to pay court to you, widowhood is not devoid of. But now I assure you, one is quite melancholy all alone. With you, the case is rather different. You live with your son, but I am not at all anxious to live with Beatrix, and she too is not anxious for it. The mother-in-law in the house does not do well, for after all, one likes to be mistress at home. Servants certainly are a plague. That is very true. Still, one can at least give them their orders. You will hardly believe me, but I should not feel very much averse to marrying again. A marriage of reason, of course. And with some sedate minister or something of that sort, I interposed, smiling. Oh, you sly creature. You have seen through me again, but just look there. Do you not notice how Tony Delnitsky is talking to your Sylvia? It is really quite compromising. Don't trouble yourself. Godfather and godmother made it up between them on their way from church. Sylvia has confided it to me. Tomorrow the young man will come to me to ask her hand. What do you say? Well, you are to be congratulated. The handsome Tony may no doubt have been a little gay from time to time, but they are all that. That cannot be otherwise, and when one thinks what a good match... My Sylvia has never thought of that. She loves him. Well, so much the better. That is a fine addition to a wedding. An addition? It is all in all. One of the guests, an imperial and royal colonel on the retired list, tapped his glass and, oh dear, a toast, most of them probably thought, as they broke off their separate talk, and sighing, set themselves to listen to the speaker, and it was something to sigh for. The unhappy man stuck in his speech three times, and his choice of a wish to offer us was not less unfortunate. The infant was congratulated on being born at a time when the country was about soon to employ the services of her sons, and... May he one day use his sword gloriously, as his maternal great-grandfather and as his paternal grandfather did. And may he himself bring up many sons who in their turn may do honor to their father and their ancestors, and like so many of those who have fallen, their ancestors, ancestors for the honor of the land of their ancestors, their ancestors and the ancestors of their ancestors, conquer or, in a word, the health of Frederick Dotsky. The glasses clinked, but the speech had not warmed us that this being only just come into life should already be entered on the death roll of future battles did not make a pleasant impression on us. To drive away this painful picture, one of those present felt prompted to hazard the comforting remark that present conjectures guaranteed a long peace, that the Triple Alliance, on this general conversation, was luckily brought back to the domain of politics. 
and minister to other side took the word. In reality, Lori Griesbeck was hanging on his words. It is clear that the defensive power which we have attained is something tremendous, and must deter all peacebreakers. The law of the Landstrom, which binds all citizens fit for service from nineteen to forty-two years of age, and those who have been officers even up to sixty years to military service, enables us at the first summons to put four million eight hundred thousand soldiers in the field at once. On the other side, it is not to be denied that the increased demands which are contemplated by the war ministry press heavily on the people, and that the measures necessitated by these demands to secure the necessary readiness of the country for war act in the opposite way on the regulation of the finances. But on the other side, it is exhilarating to see with what joyful self-sacrificing patriotism the representatives of the people always and in all places vote the increased burdens which the Ministry of War demands. They recognize the necessity admitted by all enlightened politicians and conditioned by the increase in the defensive forces of the neighboring states and by the political situation for subordinating all other considerations to the iron compulsion of military development. A live leading article, said someone half aloud. T'other side, however, went on. And all the more, because it is in this way that a security will undoubtedly be taken for the maintenance of peace. For while we, in obedience to traditional patriotism, emulate the steady increase of the defensive power of our neighbors in order to secure our own borders, we are fulfilling an exalted duty, and are in hopes to banish also far away all the dangers which may threaten us from any side. And therefore I raise my glass in honor of that principle which, as I know, is so dear to the heart of our friend, the Baroness Martha, a principle which the signatories of the League of Peace of Central Europe also prize highly, and I ask you to join with me in drinking, long live peace, and may its blessings be right long preserved to us. I will not drink to that, I said. An armed peace is no benefit, and war ought to be avoided, not for a long time, but forever. If one were making a sea voyage, the assurance would not suffice that it would be right long before the ship struck on a rock. The honorable captain should aim at this, that the whole voyage shall be got over prosperously. Dr. Bresser, who is still our best home friend, came to my aid. In reality, Your Excellence, can you trust to the honest and sincere desire for peace of men who are soldiers from passionate enthusiasm, who will not hear of anything which endangers war, viz. disarmaments, leagues of states, arbitration courts? And could the delight in arsenals and fortresses and maneuvers and so forth persist if these things were looked on merely as what they are held out as being, mere scarecrows, so that the whole money expended on their erection is spent only in order that they may never be used? The peoples are to be obliged to give up all their money to make fortifications on their frontiers with a view of kissing hands to each other across those frontiers? The army is thus to be brought down to the level of a mere gendarmerie for the maintenance of peace, and the most exalted warlord is to preside merely over a crowd of perpetual shunners of war? No, behind this mask, the civis pacem mask, glances of understanding wink at each other, and the deputies who vote every war budget wink at the same time. The representatives of the people, broke in the minister, surely the spirit of sacrifice is worthy of nothing but praise, which in threatening seasons they never fail to show, and which finds cheering expression in the unanimous acceptance of the appropriate laws. Forgive me, Your Excellence. I should like to call out to those unanimous voters, one after the other. Your yes will rob that mother of her only child. Yours will put that poor fellow's eyes out. 
Yours will set fire to a collection of books which cannot be replaced. Yours will dash out the brains of a poet who would have been the glory of your country. But you have all voted yes to this, just in order not to appear cowards, as if the only thing one had to fear in giving assent was what regards oneself. Is then human egotism so great that this is the only motive which can be suggested for opposing war? Well, I grant you egotism is great, for each one of you prefers to hound on a hundred thousand men to destruction rather than that you should expose your dear self even to the suspicion of having ever experienced one single paroxysm of fear. I hope, my good doctor, said the colonel dryly, that you may never become a deputy. The whole house would hiss you down. Well, to expose myself to the risk of that would suffice for a proof that I am not a coward. It is swimming against the stream which requires the strength of steel. But suppose the moment of danger should come, and we should be found unprepared. Let such a condition of justice be instituted as would make the occurrence of the moment of danger an impossibility. For what such a moment might be, Colonel, no one can at present form any clear conception. With the dreadfulness of the science of warlike implements which we have already attained, and which is constantly advancing, with the enormous proportions of the powers engaged in the contest, the next war will in reality be no mere moment of danger. But there is really no word for it, a time of gigantic misery, aid and nursing out of the question, sanitary reforms and the arrangements for provisioning will appear as mere irony in face of the demands upon them. The next war, about which people talk so glibly and so indifferently, will not be a gain for one side and loss for the other, but ruin for all. Who amongst us here votes for this moment of danger? Not I, to be sure, said the minister, and not you either, dear doctor, but men in general, and not our government. I will be surety for them, but the other states. What right have you to think other men worse and more unreasonable than you or I? Now I will tell you a little story. Before the closed gate of a beautiful garden stood a crowd of men, one thousand and one in number, looking in very longingly. The gatekeeper had orders to let the people in, in case the majority among them wished for admission. He called one of them to him. Tell me, only speak honestly, do you wish to come in? Oh yes, to be sure I do, but the other thousand I am certain do not. The careful gatekeeper wrote this answer in his notebook. Then he called up a second. He said the same. Again, the other entered in the yes column, the number one, and in the no column, the number one thousand. And so it went on up to the last man. Then he added up the figures. The result was one thousand and one yes over a million no. So the gate remained shut, for the no's had a crushing majority, and that proceeded from the fact that every one considered himself obliged to answer for the others too, instead of for himself only. To be sure, began the minister thoughtfully, and again Laurie Greisbeck turned her eyes on him with admiration. To be sure, it would be a fine thing if a unanimous vote in favor of laying down one's arms could be brought about. But on the other side, what government would dare to make the beginning? To be sure, there is nothing so desirable as concord. But on the other side, how can lasting concord be thought possible so long as human passions, separate interests, and so forth still continue? I beg your pardon, said my son Rudolph, now taking the word. Forty millions of inhabitants in a state form one whole. Then why not several hundred millions? Can this be susceptible of logical and mathematical proof, that so long as human passions, separate interests, and so forth still continue, it is indeed possible for forty millions of people to renounce the right to go to war with each other about them, Nay, three states, like the present Triple Alliance, may ally themselves together and form a league of peace, but five states cannot do it, and must not do it? 
truly, truly, our world of today gives itself out as wondrous wise and laughs at the savages, and yet in many things we also cannot count up to five. Some voices made themselves heard. What? Savages? That about us? With our over-refined culture? At the end of the 19th century? Rudolph stood up. Yes, savages. I will not recall the word. And so long as we cling to the past, we shall remain savages. But we are already standing at the gate of a new period. Glances are directed forwards. All are pressing on strongly towards another, a higher form. Savagery with its idols and its weapons. There are many who are already edging away gradually from it. If even we may be nearer to barbarism than most people believe, we are also perhaps nearer to our ennoblement than most people hope. The prince or statesman is perhaps already alive who is to bring to perfection the exploit which will live in all future history as the most glorious and enlightened of all exploits, that which will carry universal disarmament. We have placed our feet already on the threshold of an age in which manhood is to raise itself into humanity, to the nobility of humanity, as Frederick Tilling used to say. Mother, I drink this glass now to the memory of your unforgotten, loved, and trusted one, to whom I too owe everything, all I think and all I am. And from that glass, and he threw it against the wall where it shattered to pieces, shall no other drop ever be drunk again. And today, at my newborn child's christening, shall no other toast be proposed than this. Hail to the future. To fulfill its task, shall we clothe ourselves in steel? No. Shall we endeavor to show ourselves worthy of our father's fathers, as the old phrase goes? No. But of our grandson's grandsons. Mother, said he, breaking off, you are weeping. What is the matter with you? What do you see there? My gaze had been directed to the open glass door. The rays of the setting sun had thrown a halo of tremulous gold round a rose bush, and from this, rising up in lifelike clearness, was my dream picture. I saw the garden shears glitter, the white hair shine. He smiled at me as he said, Are we not a happy old couple? Ah, woe is me. Finis. End of section 78. Recording by Philip Erickson, Okemos, Michigan. End of Lay Down Your Arms, the autobiography of Martha Von Tilling by Bertha Von Suttner. Translated by Timothy Holmes.